The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. I was actually supposed to go last week, and last week we had to do kind of a last-minute audible and switch it up, and so James was last week, and last week uh, my wife and I were in the kids' room, and so I didn't get to hear his, but I listened to it as soon as I could because I'm always eager to hear what I missed when I, when I missed the service, and, and I just wanted to reference something that James said. He, he said something in a sermon that he was the worst sinner here among us, and uh, so after three full-time months of working here, I can affirm that that's true. He is, <laughs> he is, and I'm just saying that because his friends are here, but uh, no, I'm, I'm joking. He actually preached on the New Testament version, a passage that I had preached on when he was gone getting married on May 5th. It was the greatest commandment. I preached on the Old Testament time where that was first spoken, and then he preached on it in the New Testament, and um, I'm so glad that he did. So if you heard mine on May 5th and didn't hear his, go to our podcast and listen to his, because it was, he, honestly, he preached it 10 times better. And so I just want to say that. And also just say that as a way of saying, like, I'm so grateful for James. I really appreciate him. He's really wise. I, I respect his um, spiritual insight and wisdom as he goes to God's word. And I think it's just such an act of God's kindness that we have him here blessing us as he leads us through worship and preaches. And so um, I was really blessed by his sermon and by just the day-to-day partnership we have um, working in ministry together. So I really appreciate James. I think it's important to... Not platform him as our worship leader all the time, but also give uh, credit where credit's due. So I appreciate you, James. This morning, um, we're jumping into a story that probably is pretty well known uh, among, among you if you've been in the church for a little while. Um, odd little story that has always stood out to me a little bit. We're going to be in Luke 19. Um, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. This is so if you have a Bible with me, you can you can join me there or it'll be on the screen behind me. This is the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. He entered Jericho, this is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is God's word. So what's always stood out to me about this story that we just read is that Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name. So this isn't obviously the only time that Jesus did that. I mean, I think the New Testament is full of him having personal interactions with people and calling people by name. Um, So it's not uncommon at all. But there's something just about this strange little interaction that has always stood out to me. My heart's kind of always gone out to Zacchaeus. He's just this short little guy who just wants to see what the big deal is. 
He just wanted to see what, what, what everyone else is wanting to see. He just wanted a piece of the action. He wanted to get his eyes on the local celebrity that was coming to town. And it just always stood out to me how special Zacchaeus must have felt when Jesus came right up to him and called him by his name. He was essentially just lost in the crowd and was simply just hoping to come and see Jesus. He wanted to see what all the fuss was about, and he got abundantly more than he could have ever hoped for. So because not only did Jesus call him by name, he invited himself over for a meal. Now that's, if you think about it, that's pretty crazy. Just think about that for a moment. Think back, think back to the last time that you were at a crowded event. Sometime when you were uh, watching a celebrity. You're at a concert or something like that. And people are just packed in like sardines. It's loud. No one is paying attention to anything but the star of the show. And imagine that star, the center of attention, pausing what he's doing, signaling you out, singling you out, and coming right, right for you. Everyone around you is just getting antsier and antsier because they want a piece of, of the action too. And the celebrity, he gets to you and he calls you by name. Can you imagine that? The person who's the center of attention defers that and singles you out. Not only this, but then imagine if he invited himself over to dinner at your house. That's crazy. It's a crazy fantasy thought to have. I think these stories, these interactions, they excite us because they touch on this desire we all have to know that we're valuable. We live in a celebrity culture, a culture that puts a huge value on people's looks, skills, achievement, abilities, money, productivity, all these things. And so we follow them because we affirm that value system. We often value those things as well. And, and as we follow them, we tend to think that this is what adds value to our life by association. If we do what they do, or we're a part of the group that follows this person or this trend, then we're building credit. We're a part of something. We belong. We have a way of proving and knowing our value. And following celebrities or personalities isn't just the only way that we do this. We're driven by a desire to be better, to be a better version of ourselves. We, we simply are always living with the question before us, what adds value to my life? We seek to add value to our lives through gaining knowledge, from being smart, from having kids who need us, from having a lot of friends, having cultured experiences, from seeing the world, from owning things, from achieving peak health and performance, from being needed, from being impressive to people, making an impact in the list that goes on and on and on of all these different ways that we seek to add value to our life. We're seekers and we seek value. And so Zacchaeus is just another person in the crowd following Jesus asking, is this guy the real deal? Is, is he worth the fuss? Is he worth all the fuss? Will, will following Jesus add value to my life or is he going to compromise value in my life? Doing this cost-benefit analysis, is this something that I can add to my life? So in our passage this morning, Jesus names what we're after and tells us why we strive for it. He says in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So essentially, Jesus is telling us what Zacchaeus is really seeking. He's giving us the backstory to why Zacchaeus went to the length of climbing a tree to see him. 
He's saying, you may have thought that you were just curious, but the truth is that behind your seeking and your curiosity is a lostness that drives you to seek for answers. And what you need and what you long for most has come to you. It's come to you. Your search is over. You were lost, seeking value, value and acceptance on your own, and you've been found. Zacchaeus is an object lesson here on how our search for salvation salvation can only ultimately end in being found by Jesus. That Jesus alone brings the end to our search for value and meaning. Jesus is our hope of salvation, our hope for salvation. So if you've been in the church for a long time, you probably looked back to a time in your life when you got saved. Back to a time when you got saved. Essentially, looking at salvation as a religious term for what already happened to you at one point in your life. Now that you already know salvation, you look at it as something that's for others, specifically those that aren't Christians. So it's absolutely true, just like we see here with Zacchaeus, that there is a real point in our life when we realize that the rescue we need from our lostness is offered only in Jesus, and it changes our entire life. But it doesn't mean that we perfectly enjoy the rest and joy that comes from our salvation. Because it happened once before, it doesn't mean that that's what we're, um, that it's locked into that time in the past. Considering where we're looking to, where we're looking to for our salvation is still relevant to us in everyday life. So think about for a second how you'd answer these questions. I'd finally feel peace if. No hands? No, I'm just kidding. I'd really feel a lot happier with myself if. I feel like a valuable person when. I'm most content when. If I could just blank, then I'd be happy. So these are diagnostic questions here that show us how we functionally define salvation, what salvation is for us, what it is that rescues us from where we are to where we want to be. So I'm just going to give you a few examples just to kind of go along that line, a few examples of how this applies to me, some things that I struggle with here. So even as I'm preparing the sermon and writing it and thinking through it and getting ready for it, I have to constantly be reminding myself that my joy and my sense of worth and value is not found in how well I deliver this sermon, how successful it is or how well it's delivered. It's like I begin to think that what I really need to make me happy is people's approval, that that's my salvation. That's what I rest in. So another example is that something I'm interested in a lot is health and nutrition science and physical performance, exercise, physiology, things like that. And obviously these are, these are good things. They're not bad in and of themselves. But I have to watch myself sometimes because I'll get absorbed and I'll begin to obsess over certain things and I want to control things that I can control to make myself healthy and be at my best. And so I'll begin to act like my fulfillment in life and value as a person is tied up and determined by by how well I can accomplish this so I can be at my best and accomplish the most. So it's easy to get lost in these. these. Can you relate in your life to any examples like this where we look to other things for our value. So the question here this morning that, that we're answering, what we're looking at when we go to the text, is not only 
are you saved or are you not saved? The question is, what are you looking to for your salvation? It applies to us whether you've been in the church for a long time or whether this is your first time ever hearing about it. What do we look for? Look, what do we look to for our salvation? Is it what Jesus offers? Offered? Is it something that we can achieve or is it something that we can achieve through knowledge, method, experience? We need to be constantly reminded of the salvation that Jesus brings and this encounter that Jesus has with Zacchaeus gives us a perfect picture of what that looks like. And that's what we want to look at this morning is this example of the salvation that Jesus brings so that we can be reminded of it and look to it and rest in it. So the first thing that we see in this interaction with Zacchaeus is that the salvation that Jesus brings is personal. It's personal. I remember my first youth group event as a child, as a kid. I was in sixth grade, and uh, I'd been to a couple of our youth groups. I just barely got started, got introduced, and I was there long enough to see that there was an event coming up. It was a, uh, a concert at another church of like a Christian artist that the group was going to, to watch and see. And so I wanted to go, and so my mom, excuse me, got me signed up for it. And uh, I remember her dropping me off or walking me to the front, and I'm walking in, and I walk into this crowded foyer, and there's people squirming all around, and I'm just looking for someone I know, someone that I can, like, associate with. Um, crowd's moving around, and, and so just then, I, I look, and John Ashley, the youth director at the time, um, I barely met, I knew who he was, because he was in charge, and he came up to me, and he stuck out his hand, and he said, hi, Peter. He shook my hand, and he said, I'm glad you're here. And I'll never forget that, that gesture. I did not expect at this time for him to know my name. It feels good when people know our name. It feels good to know that we're special and we're uniquely valuable, that we're cared for, that people care about us as a person. And that's how Zacchaeus felt. He was called by name. Jesus was just passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, but he stopped and he specifically sought out Zacchaeus. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, the place where not long after this encounter, he was going to be crucified. Jesus was going to the cross for people. He was going to the cross. When he was going to the cross to be crucified, he was going for people. He wasn't going to the cross as an example, and it wasn't merely an historical event. It was his purpose. You've heard it here before, but he came to take names to the cross. He came to take names to the cross. Our passage today ends saying, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We're lost, and we need rescue because of sin. Our sin renders us completely helpless to save ourselves from the wrath of a holy God. Yet Jesus comes to seek and save the lost by name. He's not just offering a general option among many to consider among all the other ones out there. He came for people. He came to live the perfect life that I, Peter, could never live for me. He lived it for me. And then received the punishment that I deserved for my sin, my personal sin, so that I, Peter could be his forever. It's deeply and mutually personal. He had a plan from before time to take real people's sins to the cross and to call them by name to, to call them by name to new life by faith in him. 
Jesus called Zacchaeus by name, and right then, salvation became personal. He knew, Zacchaeus at this moment knew, to put his faith and hope in the one who called him out by name. So here's the world's view of personal salvation, is that it's a personal decision. So when the world has these different options for how we save ourselves, how we accomplish ultimate value, they say it's a personal decision. Everyone find the answer for themselves. Find what works, here's the way, but it's up to you. Every other religion and philosophy out there says it's up to you in your person. So the world's view of salvation is it's a personal decision. Jesus' version of personal salvation is you're mine. You're mine. I'm taking you with me. Jesus' salvation, it comes to us by grace through faith. So the way we receive this salvation that Jesus offers is by grace. It's by grace for us through faith. So what did Zacchaeus do to deserve this special treatment from Jesus? That's what we're looking at. So back when I was about 8 to 10 years old, I don't remember what year, I'm not really good with dates and ages and milestones, but about 8 to 10. And I got one of the coolest gifts I've ever gotten. My cousin and I were huge Phoenix Suns fans at the time. So this was like in the mid-90s, around the mid-90s, and this is when the Phoenix Suns were actually really good. And they had an all-star team, and their best, their best two players were Charles Barkley and Kevin Johnson. Charles Barkley was kind of my guy. He was my favorite my favorite choice, and Kevin Johnson was my cousin's favorite. We're the same age, and so we're just big Suns fans. And at the end of every October, the Phoenix Suns would come to town, and they'd play an exhibition game at McHale Center, U of A's basketball stadium. They'd play this exhibition game against the L.A. Lakers. So my aunt's birthday, my cousin's mom, her birthday is at the end of October as well. And so we were gathered as a family together for her birthday, but while we were gathered, we ended up getting a few gifts. We had a few gifts to open, and we opened them, and they were jerseys. So I, had a, I was given a Charles Barkley authentic, verified Charles Barkley jersey, and so was my cousin. He had a Kevin Johnson jersey, so we had our jerseys. But the other part of this uh, gift was that we had tickets to go to this game with our dad. So we were going in our jerseys to watch the Phoenix Suns play here in Tucson. And so the day comes, they go to the game, and it was, it was awesome. But there was kind of a small drawback that happened right before we went. My cousin had sprained his ankle really, really bad. So he was on crutches. He had a huge wrap around his foot, was on crutches as he's walking around this stadium, going to the bathroom or whatever. So he had to navigate the game with these crutches. The game was awesome, but the best part came after the game. You could clear the stands after the game. We could go down to the court, and if players decided to stick around, they could talk with us, and you could maybe see them. But as you can imagine, we get down, and it's just like crowded. We're short, and all we can see is just people's legs, and it's crowded, and, and we're, we're just standing there. And then it started to clear out a little bit, and we turn around, and Kevin Johnson is right there. He had come right up to us. So my uncle and my cousin, they got to talk with him. He just sat and visited, spoke with them, um, and he had mentioned, and he shakes their hands. I'm just sitting here watching this, like, where's Charles Barkley? <laughs> but they're taught, so I'm jealous. And the kid, no, I'm just watching my cousin have this awesome experience. I just can't believe it. It's larger than life. And, and he says, as he's talking to them, he mentions that during the game, he looked up, and he saw them limping around 
in the stadium as he was sitting down, he was watching. And so he, because he saw him, he wanted to come up and say hi. And he found him and said hi. So this is like a real-life Zacchaeus story. That's amazing. And so getting jerseys and going to watch the game, it was an amazing experience. But, but my cousin actually getting to meet and talk to his favorite player was so far beyond what we had hoped for going in. Here's the thing about this. Kevin Johnson, he didn't come up, he didn't have any reason to come up to Alex, my cousin. Uh, he just simply saw him and sought him out. It wasn't because there was something awesome that stood out about Alex, because he was big or noticeable or achieved anything that drew Kevin Johnson's attention. It wasn't in spite of his injury, like, oh, awesome, he was even injured, and he still saw him and, and came up to him. It was actually because he was injured. It was actually because of his weakness that he was seen, that drew his weakness and inability is what drew Kevin Johnson to him in that moment. So Zacchaeus, he, he stood out and was sought out, not because he climbed a tree, not because he was rich, the chief tax collector and was rich, not because he was morally good. It was actually because he was a sinner and an outcast. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and an outcast. Throughout the New Testament, we see uh, this bucket of people that society would label as the exceptionally immoral ones. These are like the prostitutes and the tax collectors, was kind of the people that they put in this bucket as the sinful ones. These tax collectors were hated because they were essentially traitors who were thefts. So they collected taxes from the Jewish people and then gave them to the Roman government that was occupying their land, the land at the time. And so that they would, they would take, they had license to kind of take whatever they wanted to line their pockets with. They set the rate and could kind of excise what they needed and wanted. So they were wealthy at the expense of, of other people. So they were hated. You can understand why they were hated by the population. But even though they could be very wealthy, they were still outcasts. So even though they had all this wealth, they were still, it wasn't just because they were, leprosy or some other socially unacceptable thing, they were, they were outcasts. And so Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector. So obviously, if he's the chief of this and he oversees it, he's very good at what he did, and he's well known by the people. They know his story. They know his, his thing. And so here's the thing. All three characters in our story that we're looking at this morning, they knew Zacchaeus' moral lack. Jesus did. He knew it. The crowd certainly did. They grumbled because Jesus went to be the guest of a sinner. And Zacchaeus did. And that's the most important part. Zacchaeus knew that he was a sinner. So the moment that Jesus invaded his life, Zacchaeus knew he was the recipient of something he didn't deserve. And the result of that was joy. It's really important to see what he didn't do when Jesus sought him out. He didn't say, of course, Thanks, Jesus. Thanks for finally noticing. He wasn't entitled. He didn't expect Jesus' attention and kindness. He didn't think, well, of course, I'm wealthy and I'm accomplished in my field. Of course he'd seek me out. He also didn't say, I'm wealth, or he also didn't say, wait, let me go. Let me go make my life right before I'll let you in. Let me go, I'm guilty. Let me go take care of it. Let me go restore what I've taken. That came later. So what we see here are three different views of salvation kind of at play here. First, we see the old Zach, who sacrificed public opinion and friendship to achieve wealth and career success. 
Second, you see the crowd's view of their salvation. They obviously felt like they were morally superior and actually saw themselves as better than Zacchaeus and worthy of judging Jesus. And they grumbled because they felt entitled to being recognized ahead of a sinner. The problem here is that they missed the point that they are just as sinful and lost as Zacchaeus. They were willing to sacrifice Jesus for maintaining the high view they had of themselves. And the third view of salvation we have here is the new Zach, the view of faith. The view that sees Jesus sacrificing himself, his public opinion, to bring an undeserved outcast in. Jesus wasn't after public opinion. He knew the crowd would judge him for eating with a sinner, and that was what he came for. Zacchaeus looked to Jesus and he saw sheer grace. He saw that he was accepted by Jesus without having anything to offer him. He knew that Jesus had something he didn't have and his response was to sacrifice everything that he had, had staked his identity on to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus humbly and joyfully accepted the salvation by grace of Jesus. And it's in this that he shows us his faith. So what we see in the, in the crowd in the old Zacchaeus is faith in self, a trust that it's up to us and we can do it. And the Bible's name for that, what the Bible calls that is lostness. Think about that word for a minute, lostness. Is there anything more vulnerable and insecure than feeling lost? And that's exactly the pitfall of all other variations of salvation we try to pursue to validate ourselves. They're painfully insecure. They're only as good as our last performance, only as good as our best effort, our best ability. And there's always someone who can do it or be it better than we can. And not only that, but we're all going to die. We're all going to die. Death is the great equalizer of all best efforts. All the things we stake our effort and meaning in, they come to an end and they waste away. Our other versions of salvation offer us no lasting security. So that's where the salvation of Jesus brings us more good news. Good news that salvation in Jesus is forever and secure. Salvation in Christ is forever and secure. Think about those words for a minute. Is there anything else in our world that we long for more. In a world that's changing so fast, in a world where broken families and mental health struggles touch every one of us at some point, in a world with monthly news reports of terrorist attacks and words, words like forever and security, they sound like a fairy tale. There's two phrases here, so follow me, there's two phrases here that show us the eternal security that Jesus brings that Jesus brings. In verses 9 through 10, referring to the new Zacchaeus, he says, he also is a son of Abraham. And referring to himself, he calls himself the son of man. So to help us understand kind of these terms, I'm going to read a few verses from Galatians 4. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, excuse me, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is one of the most theologically rich passages. There's many like it throughout Paul's letters in the Bible. Paul here, he gives us in this small teaching, he essentially summarizes the whole Old and New Testament and the thrust of, of God's word to us. So the language he uses here, it's radical. And, and, and so it's important, so important for us to understand the truly amazing gift we receive as we look to Jesus for our salvation. God's word to us is purposefully intense and intentional. Here it shows us that our former lostness, our former pursuit of various versions of salvation, religious or not, by faith in ourselves is akin to slavery. Slavery is what he calls it. It's slavery to sin, slavery in sin. And in our sin, we are enemies of God, judged as cosmic lawbreakers that can never, can never achieve the mark of attaining his acceptance through our work. The Bible tells us this and all throughout it in no uncertain terms, how bad our lostness really is. It doesn't hold back. But this passage here in Galatians, it matches the gravity of our lostness with equally shocking words. Here he speaks of us, his former enemies, being adopted as sons and therefore heirs of God's eternal kingdom. This is crazy. We can't miss the legal nature of what's going on here. Think of how you draw up a will, if you've ever done that before. You get a lawyer and all the necessary verification to put down into paper uh, something that's final and binding. Adoption, it's a legal process. And an inheritance, it's a legal process. That it's, it's no small deal, it's permanent. It's verified, it's permanent. And the key to our ability to have this kind of access to share in the eternal inheritance of God's kingdom and to cry out to him as our father is in the fact that Jesus, as the promised son of man, born of a woman, is that he is that son of man that came, promised, born of a woman. Because Jesus was a man, he was able to perfectly execute God's justice and mercy at the same time. He was able to live the perfect life of obedience God requires from mankind and at the same time was able to sacrifice himself to receive the due penalty and justice against sin that we deserved. All of this is to say that Jesus, the Son of God, truly is salvation for us. He isn't an example or someone to follow or listen to. He literally is in his very being our salvation. So when we see this and we look to it in faith, we become, as it says, sons of Abraham, children of promise. God had made a promise to Abraham to bless the world through his offspring and promised to forever be their God and that they would forever be his people. The son of man, Jesus, the son of promise, he came from the line of Abraham, but Jesus is saying here to Zacchaeus, what Paul is teaching us in Galatians, is teaching the Galatians, that to be considered the son of Abraham is to have become a part of God's family with full rights to his kingdom through faith in Jesus. Is there anything more secure and permanent that we could have 
than to consider ourselves adopted children of God, the eternal creator, the eternal God. We have become, by faith in Christ, adopted children. That's permanent and secure. Knowing that this is our eternal state, it allows us to have immense, deep contentment, security, and even joy in the midst of any pain, loss, suffering that we experience here on earth. It's an identity that completely changes what we live for. Completely changes what we live for. And we see that in Zacchaeus' life. So as we close, we're going to look at how Jesus, our salvation in Jesus changes our rule of life. We need to consider Zacchaeus' response to his salvation. Salvation in Christ, it changes our rule of life. We all have one, and we live out of it every single day, whether we realize it or not. Actually, we don't really live out of one. We kind of live a schizophrenic identity of a bunch of rules of life. Every version of what we think offers us ultimate joy, security, and happiness, it comes with demands on how we live our lives. James talked about this last week as he quoted from our book that we're studying in Life Group, the book by Tim Chester. But basically, If we're not resting in our identity as secure children of God in Christ, we're living as slaves to whatever our personal view of salvation requires of us. Whatever our view of personal salvation requires of us, that's what we're living for. For Zacchaeus, this was make money at all costs. It cost him his public reputation, but he achieved it. He was very wealthy and he was promoted highly in the line of his work, but he was still seeking. He came to the crowd to see what Jesus had to offer, and salvation found him. He was seeking because he was lost and instead found that he had been sought. Look at the freedom he experienced when the grace of Jesus changed his life. He took on a huge amount of financial loss and was joyful and eager to do it. When it says that he restored fourfold to those he had defrauded, this is way above and beyond what was actually required of him by the law for for, uh, stealing. The law required just a return of what was taken plus a fifth. So he went way above and beyond. What freed him to express this radical generosity? To give away half of all of his possessions and to face the humility of admitting and restoring his wrongs. Because he was no longer a slave. He was a son. His personal economy had just got wrecked. Jesus had become so much more valuable to him than anything the world could have offered him, could have to offer him. He'd been given an inheritance so far beyond what he could ever attain that his new rule of life was not a rule of gain at all costs, but a rule of grace. Grace now motivated his actions and the whole thrust of his life. So this is, this is what motivates us here at Holy Cross to talk about our service and our participation in the church body as a certain way. We invite, as we talk about service, and we, we uh, invite you into that, we invite you into grace-fueled service. We don't want to stake our identity on how valuable or productive we are through our service. It's not just something we should do. We don't talk about kids' ministry by saying, if you have kids, you should do your part and be with the kids. We don't want to talk about doing our fair share. Instead, we want to serve out of unfairness, the unfairness of grace that we've received. 
we invite you to look to the grace of Jesus. As you come and you enter the community here at Holy Cross, look with us at the grace of Jesus. And let what he's done for you propel you outward into a life of overflowing service and commitment to others. You don't have to prove yourself to us or to God through your service. We don't want you to think that you earn your acceptance at church through what you do. We simply want you to come broken just as we all are and see our daily need to be reminded of the grace of Jesus, the grace that Jesus gives us, and let that shape what rules your life. Salvation has come. Jesus has come. He didn't come to add value. He didn't come to enable us to be better. He didn't show us a way only. He's not someone we should stalk from afar. He's our Savior, our only true salvation, our only source of a redeemed and enduring value that can never be taken or questioned. Will you rest in him with me today? Let's look to him every day in all we do through faith.